God, the fact that we get to come here and celebrate not just who you are, but that we are yours, boggles my mind. The Almighty, the Holy God made a way that we might be called your sons and daughters. And you say, we can call you Heavenly Father. And we know that you're the kind of Father who meets us with wide open arms, waiting for us to come to you and embrace you. And so God, I pray that your love would be made so real today, that the reality of who you are, the truth of who you are, God, that you'd build faith in us to trust and believe it. And that all that we do today might be in celebration of you, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Yeah, yeah, happy Father's Day. Kids, you guys are dismissed to head on downstairs. Everybody up through fifth grade, head on down, head on down. I love seeing kids running through this place, excited about all that's going on downstairs. And hey, uh, I'm, I'm in a moment, I want to actually take a moment to pray for the dads in here in a moment. Um, but before we do that, I have just a few things I want to get us caught up on. First off, if you are new here today, if, if maybe this is just, you consider yourself new, and we haven't had the chance to connect with you as a church, we would love to do that. And one of the best ways that we can connect with you is there's a, in the pew back in front of you, uh, there's a laminated card with a QR code on that. You can take your phone camera right over that QR code and hover it over it. It'll bring up a link. If you're going to any restaurants lately, and that's how the menus are done, like you, you've done this before, um, and then that'll take you a link to our digital connect card, fill that out, and that'll give us the information we need to be able to reach out to you. It only goes uh, to, to myself and Pastor David, um, and so that just gives us a chance to start a conversation with you. If you're watching online, there's a link also uh, that you can follow. But hey, um, before we, as we continue in worship, I want to make sure you guys are in the know on a lot of things happening in the life of this church first. All right, and so first, speaking uh, really to all people, but especially to our more mature population here, our teenager group is kicking off here soon. A teenager is the, the term we give to our group of seniors um, in our congregation, and it has been about 16 months since they've had an event. Well, that's kicking off this Wednesday. Uh, everybody, we're encouraging all, everybody to come meet here at the church at 1115 uh, on Wednesday, and then they, everybody will carpool uh, to a place called the Village Restaurant in Essex and just have lunch there and come back. It should be a great time, a great chance to reconnect uh, with one another. Second, this is to parents and kids, all right? We have a kids-only night this upcoming Friday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You drop off your kids. They have games, activities, all sorts of fun stuff for them there, and guess what that means for parents? You get two hours to do whatever you want on a Friday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, but it's just a great chance to get kids reconnected with each other and give parents a chance to just go have a date night for a couple hours or just have go get your nails did or something like that. Um, should be fantastic. Third thing, and this is next Sunday. Which Sunday? Next Sunday, we are going to one service. All right, we will be at one service uh, from next Sunday through the summer, all right? And it is at 10 a.m. Everybody say 10 a.m. 
What time is it? All right. It's amazing how these things just don't always register. Um, 10 a.m. And it's going to be a baptism service, too. And it's not too late. If you're somebody who wants to be baptized and want to talk to either Pastor David or myself about what it means to be baptized, we would love to talk to you about that and see if, that, if that's something that you could sincerely do um, next Sunday. Um, after that 10 a.m. service, we're going to have a party in our parking lot. All right, we're going to have a taco food truck out there. We're going to be grilling a bunch of hamburgers and hot dogs out there as well. And it's just a chance for, it's, we're calling it the Welcome Back Bash. Right now that we're now able to gather together again without as many, or nearly any restrictions, we just want to celebrate that and celebrate all that God has brought us through in this last year. And I know that there's been so much heaviness in this last year as well. Um, so we want to just celebrate together uh, and get back together. You can, if you can stay for 10 minutes, that's great. If you can stay for an hour, two hours, it doesn't matter to us. Just that we spend some time uh, talking and, spend, and celebrating out in the parking lot after service next Sunday. And what time is that service again? 10 a.m. You guys are quick. That was the best. No offense, first service, but that was a little bit more on the draw than first service was. And we always like to say every week, and we sincerely mean it, how much we appreciate all of you for the ways that you are partnering with us in the mission that we know Jesus has given this church. We say it frequently. We want to be a church. We want to see people north of Boston become rooted in Jesus, growing in relationship with other believers, and serving our community in his love. Not just in a relationship with God, with each other, and have a purpose in the midst of this world. That's why we exist. And it takes everybody partnering with us with your talent, your time, your energy, your finances, that we might be able to accomplish that together. And so I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of you as the ways that you partner with us. And if you would like to partner with us financially, it really does take everybody. We would encourage, you can give through the app, you can give online, you can drop a check in any of the touchless boxes at the end, or you can mail a check in. Um, but uh, that's a variety of different ways that we can participate in the mission that God has for us here. Um, as he moves his kingdom forward. And we really, we trust it's not, we're not the only church in town, right? We know that God's doing a lot through a lot of other churches as well. And so we want to continue to pray for them as well. But we can't wait to see what God has ahead for us as his church. Um, now, I, I want to take a moment to just pray for dads in here. If you're sitting next to a dad, can you just lay a hand on that dad's shoulder? Um, make sure he's okay with it. Um, or not, it doesn't matter, right? Um, just lay a hand on that dad. Uh, I want to I spend a moment just praying for that dad. But I also want to pray, because I know this last year has been heavy, and there's some who have lost their dads this last year and the last couple years. And you're feeling the grief of that. There are others who really wish they could be a dad, and for whatever reason, that just hasn't happened for them. I want to pray for them as well. Um, that we lift up all these variety of needs, as much as we celebrate our own dads, we also realize that our Heavenly Father wants to minister to us who are feeling the heaviness in the midst of this day. So let's just take a moment to pray right now. Lord, we join together as one people. It's saying thank you that you are our Father. And that you tell us to call you Father. And that there is no better Father than you. And so Lord, I... I just pray that your fatherhood would be what defines fatherhood for us. 
I know that there are many who maybe they didn't get the best example of a dad. Lord, I pray that you would redefine for them what love means. And Lord, I also just want to thank you for the dads that are present in this room. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you for the labor. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the burdens that they carry on their shoulders that we don't even realize that they are carrying oftentimes. And Lord, for the ways that they have given to us and set us up and mentored and given us advice, the way that they have taught us many skills or come alongside of us in the way that they knew how. Lord, I pray that, that you would shower them just the reality that you're proud of them, that you, the Heavenly Father, are proud of them, that you would encourage dads in this room, that you'd build them up, that you let them know who they are as sons of you, and that you give us as dads the ability to reflect you more effectively to our families. Lord, I pray that you give dads in here fresh vision for what it is that you want to do in the midst of their families and in their lives. And then no matter, like, all of us, God, fall short of you. But may you show us today and tomorrow how we can be faithful to you with this role that you've given us, this privilege of being called dad. And for all those in here, Lord, who are grieving today, who are thinking about their dads and feeling sad Lord I pray that you comfort them that you come alongside of them that you would wrap your arms around them and make yourself real to them in a way that only you can Lord and may they feel surrounded by love and Lord we also for all those who wish they could have been dads and never had the opportunity and they're feeling sadness or Lord, that you would come alongside them as well. God, that you'd minister to them in the midst of this day. And that you'd allow them to feel a peace which surpasses understanding. Thank you for fathering us so well. And as we celebrate fatherhood today, may you be honored and lifted up above all. And may we know that you are present here with us. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said we stand together, let's celebrate who our God is, His goodness to us, and realizing that no matter what we are facing, that He is the way maker, that He is the one that no matter what we can't control, that He is in control.
Heavenly Father, indeed, we need your wisdom and your truth. We need your strength. We need your help. Father, as the previous song said, you are the way maker. You are the miracle worker. You are healer and redeemer and you restore and you renew and you reclaim and you repurpose. Father, that is not just what you do. That is who you are. Father, as we prepare to hear your word, Father, I pray that we hear just that, your words to your people, carried by the power of your Holy Spirit, the expansion of your kingdom. And Father, if there's anything in here that is of me, just knock it to the floor. We do not need human wisdom. We do not need human insight. We need your truth. Father, speak clearly. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Well done, good job, man. That sound awesome. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, good morning, Trinity. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and I will now take a moment and embarrass my oldest daughter. <laughs> Ava flew out to Illinois on Monday, where she'll be spending, uh, I think, three weeks. And so uh, if you're watching this, Ava, you need to be careful what you text me. So at 9.33 this morning, she hasn't been around for a week, she says, 9.33 this morning. How rude you didn't even tell me you were preaching. I couldn't give you my useful wisdom and insight. <laughs> we're going to work on humility when she gets back. Also, happy Father's Day. <laughs> so, here we go. All right. Love you, Ava. All right. Well, we continue today through our sermon series titled Following Jesus, where we are going through the gospel of Mark, and we're diving deep into the teachings and the life of Jesus, and we're applying all of that to our life and to our context now. Now, my wife is from Virginia Beach, as many of you know, and her family is still down there, and so once or twice a year, we take the pilgrimage uh, down 95, down the eastern shore uh, by van to visit. In fact, we'll be there uh, in a couple weeks for a week, which will be great. Now, there are numerous ways to spend a 10, 11, 12-hour car ride with a van full of kids. One of our favorites, which is pushed aggressively by my younger daughter, Alden, is Mad Libs. <laughs> now, I do not know if you guys know what Mad Libs are, so I will describe them to you. They are a collection of one-page stories, very short, very basic, very simple. But at key points in the story, the words are missing. And it is your job to fill them in. And so what happens is the reader of the story doesn't read the story. They just ask for the words that need to be filled in. Such as, I need an adjective. I need a plural noun. Give me a noun. Give me an adjective. Give me somebody in the room. This is always the dangerous one. Give me a part of the body. And so the audience, whoever you're reading this to, doesn't know what the story says. So at the end of it, of course, you read the story and you get this hilarious 
nonsensical story. That is Mad Libs. Well, today we're in Mark chapter 8. This is the epicenter of Mark's gospel. Everything before it leads to it. Everything after it flows from it. And we're going to play Christian Mad Libs. But instead of us filling in the blanks with what we think or how we feel, we're going to let God's word fill in the blanks. And I want us to see four foundational truths of Christianity in verses 27 through 38. Here are the truths that God's word is going to fill in for us. Number one, Jesus is blank. Number two, the church is blank by Jesus and cannot be blank by Satan. Number three, the cross of Christ was blank. And number four, Jesus calls us to blank. You ready? All right, let's go. Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. Would everybody please stand as we read the word of God together? Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my, world, my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity that it provides. And we're thankful for the way it demonstrates the power and authority and purpose of Jesus. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. All right, so Jesus and his disciples are now 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in Caesarea Philippi. That's like the distance from here to Newburyport. Think of it that way. Now, there's something that we've got to know about Caesarea Philippi if we're going to fully understand the context to what Jesus says here. At this time in history, Caesarea Philippi was very pagan with a long history of pagan worship to the Greek god Pan. This region is very mountainous, and this specific location that Jesus and his disciples stand in, in Mark chapter 8, is at the base of Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet of limestone. And because limestone is porous, underground springs 
would fill up from the snow runoff from Mount Hermon, and they would combine with underground aquifers, and they would gush forth through various caves in the face of the rock. In fact, this is the headwater. This is the birthplace. This is the origin, the source for the Jordan River, what the Jews in Jerusalem called living water because it provided their water supply. And it is there that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And I won't get into why, but there are somewhat logical reasons for the way that the Jews thought at that time that Jesus might be one of those people. But 2,000 years later, if we venture out and ask culture the same question, fill in the blank, Jesus is blank, we will get similar answers. He's a good teacher. He's a moral guy. He was a prophet, maybe. He seemed to be a good leader. And yes, all of those character traits are true of Jesus. And yet if you packaged them all together and shoved them into somebody, that person would still not be Jesus of Nazareth because even all of those character traits packaged together fall woefully short of who Jesus is. And so he turns to his disciples, those that have been walking with him now for two years plus, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Now, we know the answer to the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We know the answer to the Great Commission. As you're going, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. But do you profess the answer to the greatest question? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? The answer without which you cannot fulfill the greatest commandment. The answer without which the Great Commission makes no sense. The answer that if Mother Teresa herself, although her works were infinitely noble and compassionate, she will spend eternity separated from God if she did not profess what Peter confesses, and you will too, and so will I, because salvation does not come by works. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The answer to the greatest question, the question every human must give account to, is in verse 28. Jesus is the Christ. He's not a Savior, he is the Savior. He's not a way, he's the way. He's not a lifestyle, he is life itself. He's not a truth, he's the truth. And he is not a king, he is the king of kings. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he is not giving Jesus a last name. He is rightly confessing Jesus' title. Jesus is the anointed king of the universe and the son of the living God. And this confession must be primary individually. That from which all else in our life flows. 
It cannot be your romantic desires first and then Jesus. It cannot be your agenda first and then Jesus. It cannot be your money or career or family first and then Jesus. It cannot be your will and then Jesus. In this profession, it must be primary collectively, which is why the order of Trinity's very own mission statement matters. It's not growing together, serving our community, rooted in Christ. It is first and foremost rooted in Christ, growing together, serving our community. Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Savior, and that is infinitely good news because when we confess that, that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying that he is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, that he provided full payment and final payment for your sins and my sins, and he leads us into his righteousness. We trust alone in his grace, in his mercy, in his provision. So question, is Jesus your Christ? If Jesus himself opened up the checkbook to your life, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, where you spend your emotion, where you find your joy, where you spend your time in prayer, would he himself conclude that he is your Christ? That's point number one. Jesus is the Christ. Point number two. The church is blank by Jesus and cannot be blank by Satan. And to fill this one in, we're going to pull from the Gospel of Matthew, although this is recorded in the Gospel of Luke in, as well. Matthew and Luke both, both give us some additional detail as to what Jesus says in response to Peter's confession. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now I do not have time to dive into uh, verse 19. But let's rewind to verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because God showed this to you. You, Peter, you didn't ascend to this of your own knowledge. Man does not ascend to the person and work of Jesus Christ through knowledge. Do you know who knows more about Jesus than you or I do? Satan. God drew Peter to Jesus. As you sit here today, is he drawing you? If you feel that move in your spirit, no, it is not me or anyone else that takes this, this stage. It is God himself calling you. Make that profession that Peter made and be blessed as Peter was. Now, back to the church, verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, 
literally translated, <laughs> you are a little pebble. <laughs> you are a little pebble, and on this huge rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So let's fill in the blank. The church is built by Jesus. Let's clear something up. The church of Christ is not built on the person of Peter, but on the profession of Jesus. And that's not only a theological fact, that's a historical fact, because the first Christian church in Jerusalem was run by James, not by Peter. The church is built by Jesus Christ, on the profession of Jesus Christ, not Peter, not Paul, not James, not Pastor Kirk, not Pastor Matt, and certainly not me. It is Jesus Christ who builds his church. It is not built on human knowledge, human intuition, human wisdom, but the power and authority and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second part. The church cannot be stopped by Satan. Amen. We hear Jesus say that the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we get this warm and fuzzy feeling of the church standing there, unfazed by the onslaught of hell itself. And while that is certainly true, that is not what Jesus said. Let's go back to the context of Caesarea Philippi. Base of Mount Hermon, huge rock face, limestone, aquifers, no fewer than 14 temples to pagan gods. One of the main temples was situated in front of this huge cave in the rock. This is where the water poured out in front of the temple, which ran down into the Jordan River. And this cave opening was believed by the Greeks at that time to be the opening into the underworld. The literal gates of hell. And gates in those days were not like gates we think of now, like golf communities in Florida. They were heavily fortified and made to withstand attacks. But if those gates fall, all of the inhabitants inside were vulnerable and exposed. But we think of it in reverse, that the church is this object standing still, hunkering down to hopefully withstand the attacks. But that's not it. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is standing at the gates of hell saying that he will build his church in the growth and advancement of his church here on earth, here in enemy territory, cannot and will not be withstood by the gates of hell. It is not hell that is on the offense. It is the church of Christ that is on the offense. And you will never, ever, ever hear me downplay the importance of meeting together like we are now. To worship and make much of the name of Jesus. But can you not now see that one of the greatest tricks the devil can ever pull is to simply make you feel like an elite Christian for coming into a building for 90 minutes once a week. Churches should be like U.S. embassies around the world. We do not belong to the country we are in. We belong to the country we are from. And those embassies are not filled with administrators. 
They're filled with ambassadors, representatives in that foreign land. If the church becomes solely focused on come and see, and there is no go and tell, we might put on a good service, but we will have limited impact, I can promise you that, by the power of Jesus, with the authority of Jesus, through the strength of Jesus, we are to be missionaries, ambassadors in this foreign land. Our citizenship is not of this earth. Here's the kicker. We cannot lose. We cannot lose. It is the unshakable and invincible church built by Christ, marching through history to accomplish his will, which is the salvation of the lost. Trinity, we must not settle for an ineffective, watered-down version of church that is more concerned with self-preservation than it is with gospel declaration. That's point number two. The church is built by Jesus and cannot be stopped by Satan. Point number three. The cross is necessary. Back to Mark. Let's look at verse 31. He then, this is Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Everyone say must. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must, everybody say must, be killed and after three days rise again. Now the Son of Man that Jesus refers to here is a term used by the Old Testament prophet Daniel to describe the coming Messiah. So Jesus is saying here that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah you've been waiting for must suffer and must die. And even though Peter gets the person of Jesus right, you are the Christ. He gets the purpose of Jesus wrong. He gets the person and misses the purpose. Because even though the Jewish people were awaiting a Messiah, they were expecting the Messiah to set up a political kingdom, not a spiritual one. Set apart the Jewish nation as God's chosen people, not to include the Gentiles like you and I, to come in power, not in weakness, to crush their enemies with a sword, not a cross. And we can see the level to which Peter is disdained here because he rebukes Jesus. And that word rebuke is the same word used when Jesus casts out demons. So Peter's not messing around here. But neither is Jesus. Listen to the contrast between what Jesus says to Peter. Peter's profession, you are the Christ. Jesus' response Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter's expectation, the Christ did not come to suffer and die. Jesus' response, literally translated, get out of my sight, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Has there ever been a faster fall of man? This is like three sentences later. Blessed are you. 
Get behind me, Satan. And here is why this is so dangerous and why Jesus reacted so harshly. Because if you eliminate the necessity of the cross, you eliminate the reality of sin. And if you eliminate the reality of sin, you eliminate the necessity of a savior. If you eliminate the necessity of the cross, you eliminate the reality of sin. And as soon as you eliminate the reality of sin, you eliminate the necessity of a savior. In Jesus' final moments, Satan would have done anything to get him off that cross. For on the cross, God was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. God canceled your record of debt and my record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus redeemed you and I from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But wait a second, Mr. Preacher Man. You Christians claim that God is all loving and all merciful, but killing his son hardly seems loving and hardly seems merciful. Why didn't God just forgive everyone and get over it? Well, let me explain it this way. Yes, God is loving. In fact, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And yes, God is merciful. But God is also just and righteous. And the penalty for sin is death. Now let's say I'm caught speeding at 2 a.m. in North Reading. No one's around but me and the police officer. We go before the judge. I'm guilty. I know it. The police officer knows it. The judge knows it. No objection from me whatsoever. The penalty for my speeding is a $500 fine. But the judge lets me off with a warning. To extend mercy to me, the judge must suspend justice. But no one's worse for the wear. It's just me going too fast. But let's say the same circumstances happen, but this time I run a red light and I kill somebody that you dearly love. You okay with justice being suspended? You okay with me just getting a warning? Nope. You've been seriously wronged and someone has to pay. But here's the challenge. Justice and mercy are mutually exclusive by definition. If you execute justice, you did not grant mercy. And if you extend mercy, you did not execute justice. In every single instance, justice and mercy cannot coexist except one. At the cross of Christ, 
God executed his justice on Jesus Christ so that he could extend his mercy to you and me. God did not extend mercy at the expense of justice. He extended mercy through his justice. Listen to this quote from James Stewart, a 19th, cent a 19th century pastor in Scotland. He writes this. It is a glorious phrase of the New Testament that Jesus led captivity captive. The very triumphs of his foes, it means he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his end, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act, they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they sought to destroy. They thought that they had defeated God with his back against the wall, pinned and helpless and defenseless. They did not know it was God himself who tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. God did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of the cross. He conquered through it. And it is this self-sacrificial death that should move us to the self-sacrificial life that Jesus describes in verses 34 through 38. And this is our last point. Jesus calls us to a life of self-sacrifice. We've said this before, and we'll say it again. Jesus never calls us to go somewhere he has not already gone. The call is not to lead the way, but to follow in the way that he led. Self-sacrifice, not self-absorption. Take up our cross. Stop looking for a crown. Contributors on mission not consumers of a product. Be the church throughout the week. Don't play church once a week. When we do that, we haul culture into the church instead of the church bringing Jesus into the culture. And when Jesus says that whoever loses his life for the sake of him and the gospel will find it, he did not mean whoever physically dies. He did not use the Greek word bios, which means life. He used the Greek word psyche, which means identity. Jesus says, trade in your performance-based, your consumer-based identity, and receive an unshakable, unfading, unfailing grace given identity in him. We've said it before, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is dead. Which means we're not only redeemed and reclaimed, but we're repurposed for his mission. Jesus' life was a life of mission built on a foundation of self-sacrifice. And he calls us to the same for the sake of the good news, for the sake of the gospel. And I'll close with this. 
I shared this with the staff on Tuesday. I shared this with the 9 a.m. service. And again, I can't believe I'm sharing it here with you guys. Ever since I can remember, I have experienced what's called lucid dreaming. And lucid dreaming means that I can control my dreams. I can die in my dreams. I can fly in my dreams. I dream in vivid color. I dream in vivid emotion. I can recall dreams from years ago. I can start dreams and stop them as easy as you can pause a movie on Netflix. Well, I had a dream Monday night that I did not choose and I could not control. And it was as real to me as I'm standing here now in front of you. We were all in service just like we are now. And I was standing here just like I am now. And every single last seat in this place was taken. And all the usual suspects were here. You were all here. All the regulars, you were all here. But there were so many more. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people were here that I did not recognize and I did not know. And some way, somehow, in my dream, I knew that they did not know Jesus. And suddenly, like on the day of Pentecost, I couldn't see the Holy Spirit, but I could feel his presence and his power, and he swept through this place like the sound of the rushing wind. And every single one of those people gave their life to Jesus. And music kicked up. It was blasting. I don't even know where it was coming from. And people were dancing in the aisles. And we were rejoicing. And revival, true biblical revival, broke out right here at Trinity Evangelical Church. Now, I don't know if that dream was from God or not. But through tears, we as a staff on Tuesday, we prayed into that and we're believing for that. And as you sit here today, do you believe that God wants to move? Do you believe that he wants to heal? He wants to deliver. He wants to redeem. Do we believe what God said to the prophet Ezekiel 3,000 years ago as they looked out over the valley of dry bones? God said, although those bones are dried up and hope is lost and people are cut off, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Trinity, as we look out over the dry bones of our families, of our neighborhoods, of our nations, can we trust God to be faithful to his word? Yes or no? Last question. Can he trust us to do the same? Can he trust us to be faithful to his word? We must profess and confess that Jesus is the Christ. We must dash our idols and abandon our agenda for the church that he builds. And we must see his self-sacrificial death move us to a self sacrificial life and when we live out our gospel identity as people on mission the only sound louder than the sound of the dry bones rattling to life will be that of the gates of hell crashing to the ground let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for the way that it convicts us 
But Father, we thank, we're thankful that you don't leave us there. We're thankful that your desire is not just to convict us, but to convert us. To be a people on mission. And Father, that's not a burden. What a privilege that you, that you not just call us from something and save us from something. You save us for something. So Father, I pray that we hear this and that we believe this and we pray for this until all have heard. Mobilize us, Father. Use us as ambassadors in this foreign land to spread the good news of your love and your compassion, all found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We love you. We trust you. We believe you for this. And we know that the gates of hell cannot stop it. In Jesus' matchless name we pray.
Amen. 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 Um, we did this in the first service, and, and it was really powerful. I, I just want to take a minute, a minute or two, and just give you guys the space, not necessarily the physical space, although go where you'd like, the spiritual space. Just close your eyes, and what I want you to do is I want you to engage with God. I want you to talk to your Father. Maybe there's something on your heart you need to confess. Maybe you've seen in your life, as I did this whole week, of this text just grinding me in a good way. Areas in your life where you haven't been on mission, where you've been a consumer of the church. And let's just take a minute and just confess that. Lay that at the feet of Jesus, and then I will close us. Heavenly Father, we bring before you that which is heavy on our heart. We hear a message like this and, and see, your, see your words, see your word here. Jesus proclaims he, he, he's the Christ. And Father, I just confess that there are so many times in my life when I say that and I know it, but I don't act like it. Father, I know there are areas in my life where I white-knuckle it, maybe not trusting you for the provision that I know you'll bring or the faithfulness that I know you have, even when I'm not. Father, I confess that there are times in my walk when you've shown me people that you wanted me to preach the good news to, and I didn't. Out of fear, out of complacency, Father, your word also says that when we confess to you, you are good and right to forgive us by the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray that whatever's on our hearts today, whatever we just laid down at the throne of your son, Father, we know that we're already forgiven in Jesus. And I pray that this word, this is not a word of condemnation. This is a word of recognition of the power and authority and faithfulness of Jesus. And he calls us into that partnership with him for the advancement of his kingdom. And we know that because it is him that builds his church, we don't have to fear. The outcome is not dependent on us. We just preach. We just witness. We just love. We're free to just love. And we know your Holy Spirit takes care of the rest. Father, thank you for that freedom. Thank you for the mission you've given this church. Thank you for your word today. May it continue to equip us and sanctify us for the mission that you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we leave, uh, a reminder, we will have prayer partners down here. If anybody wants prayer, you can come on down and receive uh, that prayer. And also, if you are a dad or you're going to be seeing your dad later, we have a popcorn gift in the back to my left, your right. Grab it on the way out. And don't forget, what time is service next week? 10 a.m. You got it. All right, would you raise your hands and receive this benediction, this blessing from God. This is from 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, now may the God 
of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Amen. Have a great week. Happy Father's Day. We love you. Death could not hold.